You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Kelly, creator of the Zig programming language, to talk about Zig and open source projects. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Rate Inc. No Rate Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at norateinc.com slash jobs. And now, Zig and open source projects. We're here with Andrew Kelly, creator of the Zig programming language. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. How's it going? Going well. So let's start by just talking a little bit. I'm sure you've talked about this to death, so we don't need to <laughs> go over a ton of depth, but let's just talk about how you got into programming. Oh, yeah. Well, the very, very first program I ever wrote was in Liberty Basic, which was this weird like learning language thing, and it was it was pretty bad. But then very quickly after that, someone got me into Visual Basic 6. That's where I really fell in love with it because you know you see that, that form one and it's just begging you to do something with it. Oh, wow. So I've, I actually had the same path. I started off with QBasic. My dad bought me this book, Learn Basic Now with Forward by Bill Gates, which, you know, back in the day was a big deal. And yeah, and then Visual Basic 6, like exactly the same thing. Form one. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, that was so good. And I remember like learning little like performance tricks like when I made like the first thing you want to do if you want to make a game is you'd put a whole bunch of those like image boxes on there. Mm-hmm. But then you realize, wait, no, there's a function called what is it like pink picture window or something? Oh wow. And it was a little like a little faster. I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. It was or bit blit or something. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. I never I never got the hang of that. I, I always just was like, ah, eh, I'll just do a bunch of images and if it's too slow, then I'll figure something else out. Like simplify the game. <laughs> something <Nice>. like that. <laughs> That's cool using uh, icons for sprites because they had translucent backgrounds. I don't know if you ever did that one, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember that game, Castle of the Winds? That, that They totally did that for oh, all yeah. their art. They were literally like Windows icons, like all the monsters and stuff. Right, it was like you had like 16 by 16 or 32 by 32 bit pixels in order to, to make that happen, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Okay, so you got into Visual Basic 6. And somehow between then and now, you ended up creating a programming language. So what's the yeah. what's the brief story of how, how that happened? Yeah. And you know what? By the way, like when I was using Visual Basic 6, I had the ability to edit and continue. I could be in my debugger. I could press pause. I could go change some code, drag the control flow where I just changed the code and run it again. Press play. I still can't do that today with modern <laughs> technology. Yeah, it's weird how a lot of things seem to me to have regressed since Visual Basic 6. And I know, I, granted, I've never used Visual Basic at work. And I, I, I understand that like people who have used it at work have a different opinion of it. Maybe it's my rose-colored glasses. But I mean, yeah, I have very fond memories of the tooling as a whole. It was like really great, or at least compared to what I now have with what, like 20, 25 years later. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, we're getting old, aren't we? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thought. <laughs> we, got, we got to be careful not to turn into, you know, like old grandpas and just be like, oh, when I was young, it was better. Because Back in my day, you could pause your debugger and make changes. <laughs> <laughs> we got to check our, our grandpa status. But but it is a little bit weird that, I mean, this is technology. Technology generally moves forward True. and gets better. Right. And it's weird that we're reminiscing about how much more effective this tool was than anything that we have 25 like quarter century later yeah like it, it is a concrete feature like you can point to this and say this is not prevalent and i mean there's a lot of things that i remember about visual basic 6 that that i don't have today like just a WYSIWYG editor like but you know yeah. it's, it's not 
uh, it's not quite what I'd call a bi-directional editor in the sense that like you you drag and drop and change stuff and it edits your code. But I mean, it had a very simple system where I could make tweaks either by dragging things around and like rearranging them physically or by editing code or by editing the little properties pane on the right. I will say Qt does give you this. I've played with it and you have to pay a cost in the sense that Qt is a hulking behemoth of a dependency. Okay. But it does give you a visual editor that's cross-platform. So Qt, I, I think I've heard it pronounced cute sometimes, uh, but maybe that's something else. Uh, I've never used it, but I, as I understand it, it's a cross-platform, like you can run it on multiple operating systems, like UI toolkit, right? For like C++ or something? Yeah, well, it, it's C++, but you know, as we all know, C++ doesn't have enough features. So they added a preprocessor in front of the C++ code. So they, they added Qt language features on top of C++, and then they run a preprocessor on the C++ to give them actual C++ that then goes to the C++ compiler. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you do pay uh, a cost for the, uh, <laughs> you know, drag and drop <laughs> WYSIWYG editor. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I also have not personally used Smalltalk, but I hear about, uh, you know, Smalltalk, which is from like the 80s primarily, having had like some of these more advanced tooling features that that today seem like an unthinkable luxury or, or just like, oh, someday. I want to go on a brief rant here. I know like we're already like three tangents deep from the original <laughs> question, but this is something that's always bothered me about the language server protocol, which is that it in some ways doesn't to me feel like a step forwards technologically. It seems like almost a an aggressive push towards a local maximum that we already know about in the sense that like one way to pitch LSP, I mean, what does it give you? It means that I can in VS code, for example, or in Vim or like in any editor that supports it, I can get things like go to definition, rename something, uh, hovering to see uh, and uh, like what particular error message there is if it's a type checked language or something like that. We had all of that all over the place in the 90s. None of that is at all new. Autocomplete, none of it. I mean, Visual Basic 6 had every single one of those things That's I true. just mentioned. It did, yeah. And what we're talking about is like, that's the newest, the latest and greatest of the 2020s is not quite at the level of the 1990s. Like that's, that's what we're talking about. Like, this is the future. It's not the future. It's, it's literally the past. And it's actually not even quite the past because we haven't, there's a lot of stuff that we had in the nineties and not just the visual basic six. I mean, I also remember using like eclipse when that came out and had all those things. Oh yeah. Because of Java, not having any conditional compilation eclipse has super advanced refactoring capabilities like you can change the order of parameters with a with a key press it just changes all the call sites sure but like even before that i also remember using like borland c builder like there's so many ides and stuff like that in the past that have just had these things standard that really what's new it seems to me is just like well what if you had those things that we've had for decades except you had them in an editor you like for other reasons, like you like VS code, like the look and feel of it, or you like Vim, you know, now you can have those other features too, which to me just, it doesn't feel like progress. It feels like, well, we can partially catch up to the nineties. Hooray. Uh (laughs) I mean, by the standards of like what's possible, I don't know. It's, there's something a little bit like, I don't know, defeatist about that, about saying like, this is the best we can do. The best we can do is to approach the glory days of old. That's just so, it doesn't really fit with my conception of technology of like doing better than we used to be able to do. Like something that in the nineties, we would have only dreamed about. That's that's really, to me, what's exciting about technology is seeing like, how can we do things better than they've ever been done before? Not almost as good as they used to be done. Yeah, I, I guess if I were to try to defend the, I don't know, the 
language server situation. The problem that it's solving is a proliferation of languages, essentially. So if we think that these new languages provide value, then trying to unify their interface to a common editor to gain what we already had, it's just trying to, I don't know, capture that value. Well, I think it's maybe it's a I think that's partially it. I think it's maybe it's a proliferation of both languages and editors. Because if if every if literally everybody used VS Code, then everybody would just make plugins for VS Code and they wouldn't care about having a common format. The problem is that a lot of people use VS Code, a lot of other people use Emacs, a lot of other people right, use right. Vim and so forth. And like I like Vim. Vim that's it's nice. Sure. It's not what I would want to use forever. I'd rather use like a more advanced editor that was specially made for my language or something. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess maybe the like the proliferation of options creates some kind of tech debt that has to be wrangled. And so then we end up chasing that tech debt to wrangle it as our work that we do rather than advancing the status quo from the 90s. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's partially true. But I also think it's that, I mean, I, I guess people just don't make language specific editors like they used to. I mean, like Visual Basic mm, 6 was yeah. not like, trying to also be HTML and CSS. And like, I mean, maybe it is today. I haven't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they're on lately with Visual Basic, but I mean, and, and yeah, I guess web development is maybe partially explains that just because you have like HTML, CSS and JavaScript and whatever you're doing on the back end, kind of all being edited at the same time and web development's so huge now. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, Vim's a great text editor, but it it's definitely a local maximum, as, as you mentioned, like it's it maxes out at what it's capable of doing for everything. It's like really good at editing a language that no one's heard of before. It has no tooling. But then, you know, if it's a more popular language that has a whole bunch of tooling, it starts to fall short of other competitors. Yeah. And like all those all those tools in the 90s that were super nice, VB6, the .NET ones, Visual Studio, Eclipse. Yeah, they. I think you hit the nail on the head. They all have that one thing in common. They're all for one language only. And that allowed them to focus on those features. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see how things go with Rock. I mean, we're trying to do that in Rock, make a, <laughs> a language-specific yeah. editor that pushes boundaries. But um, okay, so Visual Basic, and then somewhere between then and now, you end up creating a programming language. Let's let's keep talking about it. What what happened next? Oh yeah. Well, uh, next I just followed my just young, curious minds whims. Just tried to explore a bunch of different concepts. You know, every time I learned about a new thing the computer could do, I always wanted to play with it, see how I could explore it. I remember still in the VB6 days, but I discovered how to call DLLs. So this allowed me to do all these fun things on the system. And specifically, I figured out that there were DLLs that would let you move the mouse and uh-huh. press, press keyboard buttons. So I made a little program for recording macros and playing them back. Oh, nice. And I remember uh, playing a joke on my uh, computer science teacher. I knew that's where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he, he was always threatening us that you know you, you got 25 teenagers on or i don't know pre-adolescents on computers you can't watch what they're all doing and uh-huh. you're trying to teach them stuff and of course they're off just doing whatever so he would always he would always threaten that the network admins were watching us like they're watching your uh. screens and like he better be, better be good all the time and they'll take over your computer if you're bad or something i knew he was lying so but i i brought my my little macro program and you couldn't run custom EXEs off the hard drive, but you could just run them off a USB stick. Like oh. their blocking software was weird. So I just brought it there and then ran it there. And then I, I recorded this whole thing about like the admin taking over my computer and like chastising me, <laughs> typing in a Word document and all this stuff. So I, I set it up and then 
I was like, oh no, oh, Mr. Hayes, the, the, the admins took over my computer. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. And he goes, what, what? And like the whole class <laughs> just came over to my screen and was watching it. And they were like, whoa, no way. And then at the end, of course, it says like, ah, just kidding. It's just, <laughs> it's just <me>. <laughs> <laughs> Got it pretty good. That's great. Wow. Yeah, I remember hearing, uh, I, I did not take the computer science course at my high school, but I did know people who took it. And apparently they, yeah, everybody found inventive ways of breaking out of the the network restrictions. I remember one person mentioned, if you got to like a file open dialogue, and you double clicked on like command.exe from within that, it would just execute it. And then you could just have a shell and then you could do whatever you wanted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they also, yeah, th- it, the Windows security was pretty weak. Like, they also block regedit, but if you just copy, like, literally copy regedit to a thumb drive, you could run it off there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, so so somehow between Practical Jokes and VB6, <laughs> you ended up, so what was, okay, so career-wise, what, what did you end up going into after your, you know, background in exploring all these different aspects of computers? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the first thing I did was an internship at Lockheed Martin, which was a defense contractor where I learned that a lot of people who have software jobs don't actually care about software. They're just in it for coasting or whatever. Uh, Really? Did not have have a good time. That is a shocking revelation to me. I'd never heard of such a thing. Yeah, I've I've, I've had jobs like that. Which is fine. I mean, that's probably normal, but I was really excited into technology. How old was I? I was fresh out of high school. 18, I guess. And I wanted to talk about software and technology and all this stuff. And all they wanted to talk about was like, oh, they're contracting someone to dig a pool in their backyard or something. They're like, you know, <laughs> they're like 35, 40 year old people just having a job. Right. Right. So I didn't really. So you went in. straight from high school directly into the pros. No, no college in between. Well, that was an internship. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was so before, this was a summer, summer internship. Yeah. It was before my first year of college. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'd hadn't. They, obviously, they're going to treat me like this. Like, what's this kid doing here? He's not, not a program. So, like, they they gave me a task like learn XML, and I'm like, what do you mean learn XML? It's a format. What do I need to learn? Like, they didn't <laughs> understand that I use computers. <laughs> so, I don't know. I just read a lot of Joel Spolsky blog posts. Like, I learned how to read blog posts during that time. That's what I learned. Like, I learned okay. how to entertain myself. I had a surprisingly similar uh, internship experience. Like, like after yeah, I, this was actually after my freshman year, I think, in, in college, but. Yeah, it was it was not uh, Lockheed Martin, but it was a company that does a lot of like government contracts, like a really big, you know, they got grants and stuff type stuff. It was for like satellites and sensors and things. And basically the first job that I had, like I, I knew how to program. I'd been programming for maybe a decade at that point. And uh, let's see, I started when I was nine. So I would have been about, oh, okay, not nine? quite, just, just shy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just shy of a decade, but the, 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 first, it was one of those situations where like, clearly they had an internship program and then they had some very busy people and they're like, and you get an intern. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this person. Yeah, I just yeah. need to go keep them busy. That sounds so familiar. The, the first job I got was literally, they had a bunch of data from a certain sensor and it was on these CDs as in like a compact disc. And the CDs were in normal size CD jewels, which depending on how old you are, you might immediately know what that means, but like a normal size CD case. And to save space on this bookshelf full of these many, many CDs worth of data, they wanted to move them into sleeves. So my job was to take the CD out of the thing and also they wanted to relabel them. So I had to like make all these labels. programming job. Not at all. No, not at all. It was just completely... Absolutely anyone could do it with no training. And so I did all that. Like it was like 200 of these CDs. And I was like, okay, I'm done. What next? And they're like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And I was like, you know, I, I can program. Uh, I, could, I could do some programming for you. And I think 
maybe out of desperation, they were like, well, there's somebody who's like on carpal tunnel leave who wrote all this code. And we just need, there's like two bugs with it and nobody is familiar with that code. So why don't you just take a crack at it and see if you can, you know, figure out what's going on with them. And I was like, okay. So it took me like a couple hours. I just like finished it and then was like, okay, I, I fixed the bugs, you know? And I was like, I don't think this code is very good. It's like a lot of it looks like it's been copy paste. I didn't tell them this, but I was like, it looks like a lot of this has been copy pasted a lot of times. Like, I think I, you could reduce a lot of this duplication, but I didn't want to say anything. It's my first exposure to other people's code. Right, you know? right. I, I, so I was like, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't, I don't think I'm missing something, but maybe I am. And so I was like, yeah, I, I, I finished the job. I, I did the thing. I, f- I fixed the bugs. You know, uh, what else do you have? And they're like, already? They're like, what it's do you like mean? The same day. It's like, well, they weren't that hard to find. Like uh, you told me what the bugs was. So here are the <laughs> fix. And then from then on, they're like, okay. And they like gave me my own project and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the, the expectations could not have been lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was a struggle to get any real work assigned for sure. <laughs> okay. So, so then I guess in college, you did computer science, I'm guessing. Yeah, I have, I have a computer science degree. I don't know, Arizona State, not super great at computer science. I uh, had a couple classes that were nice, but I think the people I met along the way is the real gem of college. Yeah, I, I got to say, I know that people in, well, there, there's a whole thing, at least in, in my experience, around computer science degree versus self-taught versus boot camp versus et cetera. I don't know what your experience was, but my experience was, yeah, I met a lot of great people in college, but like the practicality of what I learned, like the percentage of stuff that I learned in a computer science degree to what I actually end up using either at work or outside of work is shockingly low. It's extremely low. It's like maybe single digit percentage wise. And I look at what people learn in boot camps and I'm like, you know what? They use all of this on the job. Yeah. Like, I think that that's just a much more efficient way to, and also there's a bunch of stuff that like is just not covered at all in a computer science curriculum that boot camps actually do cover. Like, like how to ask for a raise, how to have a one-on-one. Yeah. Oh, I, that too. But I was even just thinking about stuff like if I hadn't happened to take one particular elective, I would have never used a version control system of any oh, type. Oh, I see. Yeah. In, in, in all of college. Yeah. Like that's really important. And like, especially because, you know, gets like not a user-friendly one and that's what everyone uses. So like, you know what? That's right. I remember it because in college, like, yeah, there was no class, no, no professor ever encouraged us to do it. It was kind of just this underground knowledge that we spread as students that like you yeah. should use version control. Like that's where you learned that information was through the just the rumor network of students. And and maybe that's different now. I mean, this was a long time ago. This is like, you know, oh God. Okay. Oh yeah. It was, old. <laughs> it was an unthinkable number of years ago, but maybe today it's different. But yeah, I, I, I think putting a CS degree on a pedestal is like this is an important thing. I just don't agree with that. <laughs> As someone who has one, I just don't think it's like yeah, like, oh, you gotta learn the fundamentals, you gotta learn this and that. And like, I just don't buy it. I think it could be, but I don't think that what I received was worthy of putting on a pedestal. Sure. There, there's like a hypothetical thing that a CS degree could be that is, yeah, that's like maybe pretty different. But I mean, I, I'll, honestly, like a lot of the stuff, when I think about what ended up being important in my career and in my side projects relative to what I learned, a lot of what I learned ended up being either trivia that I just like, let me make some jokes and like understand some jokes that like, like that's really where for a very long time, a lot of that stuff, you know, came up for me or by sheer dumb luck, eventually I happened upon the exact problem that was in exactly the right shape as that. Like mm. until I got into also making a programming language, I had no use for assembly language. Like as a web developer, there's just no reason to to like 
need to know that. It just never comes up in, in my experience. I could have very easily gone my entire career with just like the semester that I spent learning assembly and like doing stuff with it just never, ever came up. I never used it. But as it happens, there was that one particular you know thing like, okay, if you're making a low level compiler, then it's really useful. Also, I understand that if you're going into like game development, that could be much more important. Like if you're or, or something that like really has extreme performance requirements also totally could be. But it's not like that's what most jobs are. I mean, most jobs like percentage wise are like people using garbage collected languages and never getting down into like WebAssembly at all or, or uh, assembly at all. Yeah, so just, I just I, I have said the phrase WebAssembly so much more often than assembly that like I just reflexively <laughs> said WebAssembly. <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I didn't even catch it. So we're on the same yeah. page. Same page. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not saying I like regret going to college and like, you know, getting a, a computer science degree. But I don't know. I, I whenever I hear someone say like, uh, you know, like almost like apologizing for not having a CS degree and feeling like they're they're missing something. I'm like, I don't think you're missing anything. If you're if you want to be a web developer, for example. I, yeah, not from the classes. I mean, I wouldn't if there's any students or potential students listening, I would I would encourage you to think about going just to meet friends like you. You probably meet your best friends in college, I think, totally. and professional connections. That's important. But as far as the classes go, I'm, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. Yeah, so career wise, I guess it's not like you should consider yourself lesser. I wouldn't. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no, there's no lesser. It's just yeah. I mean, there's other places to meet friends too, like the boot camp thing you mentioned. I'm sure that's a place you can make friends. Oh yeah, sure, no doubt. I mean, it's it's probably not the same thing because it's a lot shorter time period and yada yada. But okay, all right. So after college, post internship, you're you're going into industry. So I had this experience where I was shocked at how uninterested my peers or co- my coworkers were in in just technology and computers and things like that. I wanted to surround myself with people who were excited, passionate like me. So I naturally turned to the startup world where you can get some of that energy. And so that's what I did for, I'd say, most of my career. Same. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was definitely like a pendulum swing. And so what I what I learned was that I was able to find people who cared that I like that. I was able to get more control, more power. Maybe better words would be responsibilities. I was able to become more important within, you know, a smaller organization yeah. and, and thus Bigger feel, feel yeah, more impact, feel like I mattered, that sort of thing. So I liked all those things. But over time, I realized there was one thing that I really didn't like, which was that I was in it to make people's lives better. And I started it started to become more and more obvious to me that each startup was not in it to make people's lives better, even though that's what they purportedly were for. They were actually just to make money. And every once in a while, I would just really butt heads with someone where like most of the time these things do align. If you're a startup, then making people's lives better leads to money, usually. But the occasional times where there would be a conflict here, it, it was it was striking and it, it really mattered to me and it bothered me. And so this little wedge was kind of driven into my head about the, this. I just living with all this dissonance about are we making people's lives better or are we are we just trying to make a buck? And so, I mean, and that's I guess that's just foreshadowing for where I <laughs> where I landed today. I get that. I actually like this is the first company I've worked for. No Red Ink. That's actually legitimately not primarily in it for the money. So the founder was an English teacher for eight years. And basically there was like a bunch of things that he wanted to do, but like physically could not do himself without the aid of technology. So he actually hired a guy on Craigslist to like build the first version of this for him to use in his own classroom. And long story short, like other teachers were interested in it and stuff. And he eventually decided he was going to leave teaching to make tools for other teachers. But at the time he was like, well, like, so how should I go about doing this? Should I make a nonprofit or should I like 
make a business or like, you know, how, how do I go about like making these tools to help out other teachers? And he ended up deciding to go for a business. He actually has a whole like internal company presentation titled why we sell because like that was a question he asked himself like, should we sell something or should we just like ask for donations and stuff? And the reason he decided to make it a business was specifically to align incentives because his concern was if I make this a donor funded thing, then like I'm kind of at the mercy of my donors to continue existing. And since my donors are most likely going to be nothing to do with my users, like it's not going to be problem. students and teachers donating. Yeah, it's just going to be like, well, if this philanthropist decides that, like, you know what you really got to do is this and they're not going to write me a check unless I do this. I guess that's what I'm building now. That's a problem. Yeah. Whereas if I make it a business, then like I actually get paid by schools and like educators and like some of the incentives are aligned and like I can actually just build the stuff that's like the most useful to them, which is what I want to do. And that's how he runs the company. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But let, let me ask this question, though. So if I understand correctly, um, the company is like pretty new and this guy who founded it still works there and it was founded, I don't know, within the last 20 years. Yeah. It's, hmm, I guess it's about 10 years old, actually. Yeah. So this is, this is like the sweet spot, right? Where the company is good. It's like a small, it's like, it's basically the, the textbook mom and pop shop, essentially. And like, people love these kind of businesses. I love these kind of businesses. And that's good because businesses are people. And the person in charge is this guy who's got good motives and he's doing like the incentive thing, the incentive thing that you just mentioned makes perfect sense. But here's the problem. Here's the pattern. He's going to get old. He's going to retire. And someone else is going to be in charge. And then it's going to turn into a regular for-profit company. Some company's going to come in. They're going to buy it. They're going to try and flip it like a house, try and sell it again. This just happened to my dad's company. There's a roofing company. They build roofs in Arizona. And it was founded by this guy. This is public information. This is a guy named Mark Farrell. Started a roofing company. Does great work. It's like the mom and pop shop of, of roofing house, houses in, in industrial places. They do like all the schools in Arizona. They do really good work. They take care of their customers. Everyone loves them. They're they growing, growing, growing. They just, the guy's just getting old. He's retiring. There's like, doesn't, there's no one that he can hand the company off to. And so it just got bought, just got bought by some big holdings company, just some whatever company. And they're going to flip it. Everything's going to go to shit. That's the problem. The incentives do line up, but it's, it's, you have the bus factor with no red ink. It's the, it's the founder. That's interesting. I I honestly hadn't put much thought into like what happens if like if Jeff is no longer running the company because it's like it's so unthinkable. But I mean, yeah, like everybody has a finite lifespan. It's it's a it's a fair point. Like what would happen at some point if if Jeff is no longer the person running the company? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't either. I, it's a hard problem to solve, and I don't I don't mean to throw shade. I mean I like from what you're saying, like No Rating sounds like a company I would love. But then in my head, I'm also thinking like it. I think it has a lifespan. Like. I, I, there's a gauntlet coming. You know what I mean? Right. At some point, the question has to be answered because nobody lives forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so he has. To, it's like a. It's like a kingdom. Like a lot of the. If you learn about like a lot of European history, like there were some kings that were like pretty good. They actually like helped the economy. They helped people. They improved justice. All this stuff. But then they just like didn't have a son, or they didn't figure out how to transition their their power structure when they died. And then the next person just like completely undid all their great work. Yeah. It's the same problem with a with a for profit company. It's well, it's not just monarchies and companies, and I mean, uh, this this happens in programming languages too. Like this is something I'm thought about. I'm sure you thought about is like so. I'm making this programming language called Rock, and I think about like let's say that someday I'm dead. What happens to Rock? Like, how do people continue working on it? I don't like the idea that like this thing that I've already put several years of my life into and plan to put it, you know, a double digit number more years into. I don't like the idea that it's like I die and then everything just falls apart. So I've always thought of this as like the 
the generational problem. How do you make sure that future generations after not just the current generation, you know, are, are able to keep it going in a good direction? And I have thoughts on this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, that's a that's a question that I've asked myself and I also don't have a good answer to. I know what I want and what I want is to get it to a point where it's in kind of maintenance mode. Like I, I think some languages maybe Rust, even Go, like Go's doing a 2.0, they added generics and stuff. I want a Zig 1.0 to be basically done. And like, it's good enough. Like we solved enough computer programs with it. If you want, you know, something else, use a different language. So that's what I want. How to accomplish that? I don't know. Like I could try to pick a successor, but that has the weakness of, I don't know, kingdoms, <laughs> the same problem. I could try to set up some kind of like committee that's just like the power is distributed so much that no one can accomplish anything. But that has its own <laughs> downsides, you know? I don't know. I, I don't know how to solve this problem. Yeah, I also considered an unsolved problem. And I thought a lot of the same things. Like one of the things that I think about is what do I think about? Like looking at all the programming languages out there that have been around for multiple decades, what do I like about how they've evolved over that time period? And what do I not like? And one of the things that I consistently see that I don't like is that they always accumulate features until whatever they started out as, they are now a huge complicated language. Yeah, yeah. I don't want Rock to become a huge complicated language. So in the early days, like now we're not even out of like 1.0 release or not even at 0.1 release. Like it's no problem. We can just make whatever changes we want and we can add stuff and take other things away. It's all and experimental. Yeah. But at some point it's going to hopefully be used by enough people that we want to do a 1.0 and make some backwards compatibility guarantees and say like, we're not going to break this. We're not going to break that. But then as soon as you get into that mode, it becomes very important that you are very, very careful with how you add new features. Brian Getz did a really cool talk about this. I forget what it's called, but he was talking to a bunch of Clojure programmers was at a Clojure conference and he works on Java. So Clojure is built on the JVM. So you know they're interested in like the future of Java and stuff like that. And he told a story about how much work and how difficult it is to add a feature to Java like Lambdas, for example. And he's like, now you probably think this is a joke. You're a lisp. You know, Lambdas, you have Lambdas on day one and Java took a million years to add Lambdas. And I, also I know like, you know, at a, if you're making a systems level language, that, that's a whole other can of worms. But for garbage collected language, it's not really a controversial feature. What was what was difficult was he was like, you know, and what I find rewarding about my job working on Java is that there are so many millions of people using this technology. How do I add a new feature in a way that doesn't break all of their code and in a way that like that where there's some path by which people can incrementally transition to that? And on the one hand, that sounds like an interesting kind of fun challenge. But on the other hand, I wonder about how do you create an incentive structure where someone's like, just don't do it. Don't <laughs> add the feature. Like, yeah. don't overcomplicate the language because Java is absolutely a huge, monumentally complex language. And like, presumably all these people, these millions of users are doing fine without Lambdas. I mean, evidence suggests <laughs> there's millions of them, right? And like, that's not to say that Java is a perfect language, but I think there's, there's room for saying like, at some point you cannot make every language be the end all be all, especially not if you also want backwards compatibility. At some point you have to say this language can't get net better by adding more features it can only get net worse and if you really want those features like maybe you should look to a different language like you know that's fine that like nobody uh, hopefully has the hubris to say i have made the programming language no one else will never need to use another programming language in the history of programming until we're all our brains are plugged directly into the singularity or whatever. And you know, we don't, we just think in programs appear. Oh, for all of the future too, you're saying. Yeah. Right. Like, of course that's not a real thing. Like programming languages are like 
just like anything else, they, you know, they are really good at something for some period of time. And then at some point there's progress. Somebody else comes up with something else, but you can still be really valuable and really nice for like a whole set of problems for like a really long decades, you know, like like even be like the best at those for decades. You could be your one tiny little contribution towards getting us to the space age, just a one little tiny stepping stone among many. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, to your, to your point, I don't know how to prevent that from happening. I mean, one is you try to set up a structure that's sort of optimized for gridlock where you're like, it's, <laughs> re- it's just really hard to add any feature. Of course, the problem with that is like the surrounding environment around programming languages also changes. And like, it's not as if the s- exact circumstances that were true when you first did 1.0 are going to be still true 15, 20 years later. It might be that there is a new feature that's sort of necessary just to like adapt to whatever that new world looks like. I don't even know what it might be. So you don't want to make it impossible to add changes. You ideally want to make it difficult, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the fundamental problem here, and it's kind of the same problem as we were mentioning with businesses too, is that really like pe- people are really important. Like, oh yeah, a lot of people think that you can just fork a project, but like that's not how it works. You you have to think about like I've seen I've seen someone try to fork Zig because they didn't like that we reject hard tabs, right? This, <laughs> this, this fork lasted one hour because they gave up. Like a fork it requires maintenance. You know what I mean? Yeah. A project is people and a business is people. And so sometimes we think like, oh, you know, Rust is like a programming uh, language or a, a compiler. But like, no, it's people. Yeah, absolutely. And like same with Zig, same with Rock. I think uh, something that's under discussed about forks or maybe like it's discussed if you find the right people, but like a lot of people just don't even think about it is just like, what percentage of forks actually go on to even get like one tenth the popularity of the thing that they're forking? And also those that do, how many of or what percentage of the people involved in the fork came immediately from the other project? Like I think about things where people are like, oh, this project got taken over by often a corporation or something that's like, you can't use our trademarks anymore or whatever. And it's just like a bunch of the people who are working on it are like, all right, see ya. And they just fork it and give it a new name and they all just keep working on it. And then the original thing kind of withers in comparison. And, that, and that's that's kind of the fork, right? Because the original people are on. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right, they just left. It's not like, like, like you said, it's about the people and the people just went and did the same thing under a different project name or went in a slightly different direction or something like that. As opposed to one person is like, I don't like this design decision about this thing. I'm going to go and do my own thing from scratch, except not from scratch, using this existing code base, how often does that story end with, and it was very successful. Like, yeah. I literally can't think of any example. I'm yeah. sure it's out there. Like, it's um, it's probably not zero, but I mean, it's 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 not a recipe for success. We can say that. So I've, uh, I've just embraced this concept that a, I don't know, programming language project such as Zig is organic and it's made of people. It's meat, you know? I've embraced this concept and everyone who is paid to work on Zig intentionally has a really broad agreement in their contract, like a vague statement of purpose. So for example, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something like, you can clock hours if you're doing something that is directly or indirectly related to like advancing the Zig project. That, that It's like intentionally general. And so nobody who's getting paid to work on Zig actually gets handed tasks. I don't tell people what to do. If someone wants a suggestion, I'll give a suggestion. But I mean, part of the reason that we have 
a macho linger in the Zig project is because that's what Jacob decided he wanted to work on. It's not what I would have prioritized. That's his choice. And you know what? It works great. It's been doing great. It's been helping our uh, promotion. It's been advancing the use cases we can support. I'm super happy with it. And it's not something that we would have had unless he decided that's what he wanted to work on. Just so we're clear for people who aren't familiar with the term, you want to <laughs> define what a macho linker is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, it's what's letting us cross-compile programs to Mac OS with Zig. Because when you compile code, you typically will end up with an object file. And this is machine code, but it's not quite ready to run. You then have to link the objects into an executable. And Mac OS decided that they wanted their own fancy little object format called Macho. And so you have to have a special different linker that is capable of turning these macho objects into something that can run on Mac OS. Is that is that how most people I always thought it was Mach O, like because it's like there's a dash in it. It's like M-A-C-H dash O. I'm sure I don't I'm know. saying it wrong. I don't know. I mean, but but it is like it is those letters in that order. So like it's a reasonable way to pronounce it. <laughs> I, I will say we do call Jakub the macho man. <laughs> it definitely lends itself to puns. <laughs> All right, so let's let's also back up because a lot of people listening might not be familiar with how, like how the Zig Software Foundation works. Do you want to just kind of give a little background on like wh- where does the money come from? Oh yeah, sure. So I started this project six years ago, just moonlighting it nights and weekends while I worked on uh, at other jobs. It was open source from the very beginning. Uh, you know, Hello World, where I just touched the README, open source right away. So it's been just slowly, slowly gaining more traction. I started taking personal donations via Patreon and GitHub sponsors and. Eventually, it got enough where I could quit my day job. That was a wonderful day in my life. And then it got enough where I started a nonprofit, official tax-exempt organization. So now most people are donating to that tax-exempt organization, which is the recommended way to donate because you're, you know, you're keeping me and, and everyone else le- legally accountable to do the, the good thing with those funds, which, importantly, applies after I die, too. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so now there's an organization. So we have some cash flow, and we're paying three people full-time, including myself, and a, a couple other people part-time contracts. Nice. That's really cool. I mean, everyone at the company has the freedom to choose what they want to work on. I don't ask questions about what did you work on. They just say, I worked this many hours, and they get this much money. So there's a lot of trust. There's it's a lot of high trust. trust. Very yeah. high trust, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the phrase that always comes to mind there is just like, trust is efficient. Mm-hmm. Like, like kind of the alternative to trust is bureaucracy if you think about it right <laughs> and that slows everything down so it's really cool that you're able to to work effectively in that way and it does seem like it's been going pretty well yeah yeah i'm, I'm really happy with everyone i will say there's so like here, here the advantage of, of what i've done is I've, I've been able to choose people from a pool of people who have who've kind of self-identified as intrinsically motivated like loris was already doing zig showtime with no intent of getting paid to do it so that's a natural candidate you know, Jakub was already volunteering his time to do contributions with no intent to getting paid for it. So the problem with this is it it does filter for privileged people. So if you pick people who have time and money to contribute to open source, you will pick more white males. And that's a downside. But the upside is that you're going to pick people who have proven that they are motivated, trustworthy, care about the project. And so the, the trust is already there. And now you just establish a way to keep their their lives sustained and then everyone wins. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it definitely seems like one of those situations where it's not perfect. It's not the ideal, but it's really hard to find something that's like better or, or more effective um, given the resources you have. 
Given the resources is a really important yeah, constraint. Yeah. Because you're entirely funded by basically small donors. Yeah, our donations are spread really evenly. So we don't have that problem where, you know, one philanthropist can tell us to go a different direction. And I intend to keep it that way. I think that that's good for everyone, right? No one wants there to be a big donor who controls the direction of the project. You know, by being a small piece of the pie chart and having the whole pie chart be made of small pieces, you know that that the incentives are at least independent from control by a minority. Right, right. Yeah, And how important is that to you? Like if somebody walked up to you and was like, like Microsoft is like, Andrew, I will pay you a million dollars a year. I will donate a million dollars a year to Zig Software Foundation. But it's going to need, we're going to need to have first class .NET support for this and that, you know. And, and oh, that's as, a string, Azure, right? Yeah. Right? Uh, well, I mean, maybe it's not overt, but maybe it's like you can kind of see it coming. It's implied, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do in that? <laughs> face well, with a choice okay. like that? Here's the thing, though. If it's truly no strings attached, we can do a lot with a million dollars. So, you know, like I don't mind burning a, a small bridge to get a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's here's the thing, though. Now, let's say several people have decided to quit their day jobs to go work for Zig Software Foundation because of this money. And then all of a sudden, the money goes away or is threatened to go away. And then you're like, oh, my God, all these people, their lives, their livelihood is this. That is definitely something I think about. And I'm careful not to give out consistent full-time work on money that we don't have guaranteed or, or high, high, high predictability that we're going to have. As an example, like we have a lot of buffer. So we have savings that can give us like many months to get people paid while we try to come up with another source of funding. So there's the buffer. That's part of the plan. And then the other part of the plan is, yeah, like if, if we were taking a no strings attached donation from a single large donor, I would be very careful before setting someone up on having their income depend on that. Like I just, I just pay attention to these things and I make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. So something that we do is give out a pool of hours. So this only works for people whose schedule allows it. But it's just an understanding that we have the budget for this many hours and not more. If that works for you, you can have this contract. But, but it's explicitly saying like, don't depend on this as your only source of income because it's just one pool of hours. You might not get another one. Okay, so speaking of incentives, Something that I think is interesting to think about at sort of the intersection of all these ideas is how do you solve the problem of people wanting to make really high quality software and yet not having something of a like centralized organization built around that? Or maybe a better way to say this is what types of organizations and organizational structures are best set up to create great software? Because certainly there has been plenty of precedent in the past where great software has been created. I mean, we were just talking at the beginning of this about how Visual Basic 6 was so great for us that, you know, earlier in our lives. Um, I would absolutely, I mean, at least based on my memory of it, consider that a great piece of software. That came out of Microsoft, which is, I mean, even then it was a huge company. I know a lot of people really like Smalltalk. I'm a big fan of Elm. But all of those were created in pretty different ways. Like Smalltalk was created by this small group, like handful of people at, you know, a, a research on a research project. Elm was basically created by one person at first in his spare time and then full time. Zig is this loose conglomeration of people, you know, all funded by small donations and some people full time, some people part time. What do you think is are, are sort of the essential ingredients to making great software from an organizational standpoint? My opinion is that people want to make great software intrinsically, generally. And they just need to be unblocked. 
I, I remember so many times at startups that I worked at, I wanted to make the software more great for the users. And I was told, no, don't do that. That would be a waste of your of money. Yeah. So I think to answer your question about incentive structures, I think that the incentive has to be to make great software, not to make money. Because these two things are sometimes aligned, but often not aligned. Interesting. So I guess there's also a question of great according to one metric. Like, for example, one concern that, you know, trying to put myself in the position of someone at a startup saying, don't work on that, it's a waste of money or a waste of time or whatever. They might be thinking dot, 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 because of the opportunity cost, you could do this other thing that's now maybe they would say that this other thing that makes more money, but also it could just be that that improves quality somewhere else. Like you gave the example of Jakob working on the linker at a startup, they might say, well, it's great that you're so passionate about making the linker really excellent, but maybe it's more important to work on, I don't know, compile times or, you know, the parser or something else. Okay, but take that example for a minute. Imagine if I would have said like, no, don't work on a linker, work on compile times instead. Think about the difference in like intrinsic motivation that he would have had throughout the months that he spent on this project. Sure. One of them would have just been like a job. He would have slogged through it. I don't know, just tried to figure out what I wanted. On the other one, he's pursuing his idea of what great software is. To me, that's the incentive structure that you need. It has to be like the intrinsic motivation is so underappreciated, I think. Yeah, I, I, as it happens, I subscribe to the same philosophy with Rock, where like the phrase that I always use is just like optimize for excitement because it's, it's Rock is an all volunteer project. Like nobody's getting paid to work on Rock, at least today. And so, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool if someday that were different, but <laughs> for the moment, that's true. And yeah, like there are plenty of projects where I'm like, you know, if I were to make a stack ranking of like, what's the most valuable thing, you know, in terms of like the language moving forward that someone could work on next, that's not the same thing as the ranking of like, who's working on what it's really just about like, whenever somebody new is like, Hey, I want to come contribute to rock, I want to get involved. Usually the first thing I ask them about is like, what are you interested in? Like, what do you want to work on? And let me see if I can find a project that like matches up with what you're excited about. And like, why don't you give that a try and see if you like it. And if you do just run with it. And yeah, we've gotten some really great results from that. And it's not like if you were to look at like what parts of rock are improving and at what pace, it's kind of all over the place. Like it's there's no like rhyme or reason to it because of that. But at the same time, it's like I especially feel that way about, you know, a volunteer project where it's like people are doing this in their nights and weekends. I mean, quality aside, it's just like if it's not fun for you, why, why would you be doing it, right? It's like, I could be playing guitar, I could be playing a video game, I could be doing something else instead of doing this. If it's just like work that I'm not getting paid for, why would I do it? And this, this kind of segues a little bit into a, um, there's a lot of conversations these days about like open source and sustainability and things like that. And I got to admit that a lot of the discourse around this kind of bugs me as a person who does open source, because the way I've always felt about it is just like, I just do it because I like it. You know, I'm not doing like if I make something and a giant company uses it and like makes a bazillion dollars off of it. I understand why people might be upset about that, but it just doesn't resonate with me because I'm like, well, I had fun making it like I did it because I enjoyed it. And I because I like I wanted other people to be happy using it. Um, Other people used it and were happy you to use it. So like, I got what I wanted out of it. If somebody else also got a bunch of money out of it, I'm not like, what the hell? I'm like, okay, that's what I signed up for. I understand completely why other people might feel differently about that. But from my perspective, it's really about like, I'm doing this because the act of doing it and the act of creating something that I'm really proud of is just innately rewarding to me. 
sparks joy would you say yeah exactly right <laughs> and if like if it doesn't spark joy then it's a job so <laughs> exactly right play to earn right <laughs> which is why like the the drum that i'm always beating is not so much like uh, about like open source funding models being broken and stuff like that but actually it's more about people i really want people to treat open source authors better like users of open source software and not to treat them like i'm your customer like you're a business who gets paid to do this as opposed to somebody who does it on their nights and weekends and because i did you the favor of using your software i get to i get to be a jerk to you or i get to like complain at you about you know this and that like i mean obviously people can do what they want but socially i think like in my ideal world when somebody says something about on like an, files an issue on like an open source project and obviously people should express like disagreement and you know surface problems and bugs and all that stuff but there's a certain way that people sometimes do it where it's just like i'm going to be mean about this and just make your day worse they, like they come in this uh, issue. guns blazing right yeah sure or or even just like just like i'm going to report this bug and also i'm going to Leave a little jab about how uh, you're dumb because you let this slip through, you know, or this is a low quality piece of software that you've made here because of this bug. And and like what I wish is that culturally, if somebody did that, other people than the people maintaining the software would jump in and be like, dude, what? What are you doing? Like it's it's it would be as if you right now for that to happen. It has to be somebody comes along like just just as a social norm for people to say what you just did is not cool and like you should not do that it needs to be really far like way across the line and i i wish that that were moved back to where it's like by default you just treat this as like hey i'm benefiting from something you made on your weekend so like i should be default nice to you not just not a horrible person to you but like way like it should be like beyond polite. It should be like appreciative. And I, I try to do that myself. Whenever I open an issue, I usually start like on somebody else's repo. I start with like, hey, thanks for making a really great library. And then like, I ran into this bug. Here's as much detail as I can give you about it, et cetera. And just, I, I don't know, I try to model that, but it's not a cultural norm. And I really wish that it was. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, for, for me as a moderator of, of the Zig GitHub, that's just an Insta ban. I mean, if, if first time first time commenter, you know, and they have no like their first participation in the community is to is to be hostile. Yeah, I'm growing a garden here and that's a weed. I will pluck the weed and throw it in the garbage. Like I don't owe that person their ability to participate. That's a bold stance. I mean, I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. I don't know if I personally have the like. And those people are never donors. They're never donors. To do that. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, I guess like I, I have some scars of like participating in open source projects where people will criticize you for like being too quick to ban or like over banning. And yeah, stuff. I noticed that it's unpopular if you admit that that's your strategy. No one likes to learn that that's what you're doing, but everyone likes to participate on the Zig GitHub issues because it's nice. It's a garden. It's a beautiful Zen garden. <laughs> that's a strong pitch. I got to admit. Wow. Now, now I got to think about that. But it's like it's like the Batman thing, right? It's like the hero that you d deserve or need or whatever. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it. But the point is some Batman related metaphor. Yeah, they don't like Batman, but they like when the city is clean. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, yeah, I, I, I take your point. And yeah, that's I mean, that's one way to get there, I guess. Going back to your point, though, I, I feel that the more traditional way to look at this interaction was going back to the 90s, I guess more of a collaboration where it was more uh, like open source was new. It wasn't this already conceptualized thing. And so someone putting out software was kind of like, Hey everyone, I did this weird thing where I decided to give you my software for free. 
no warranty, but if you use it, like, let's collaborate. And so then a, a user would say like, oh, hey, you know, I found a problem. Let's work together on solving the problem. But I, I feel that what's happening now, we're in like this late stage open source where companies have figured out to exploit labor. And so the person might actually just be an employee of some company where they're being like rushed to complete something and they're being told by their manager to depend on open source software and their schedule at their work, them like getting a raise or, or getting like, I don't know, good vibes from their manager depends on completing this task in a fixed amount of time, which requires there to be no bugs in the open source software. So they're between a rock and a hard place. Like their living, their income, their rent, their food, their kid's college fund depends on this open source software working. And it's like, I don't know, the real culprit here is that we didn't have a budget for working on software that is the company depends on. I, it's a great point. I mean, I, I definitely... I can simultaneously want the culture to change while also feeling empathy for people who are in the position of like, they didn't ask to use this software, you know, and, and it's making their day worse because this bug happens and they're frustrated about that. Oh, I'm not saying that they're justified in doing that. Like I'm trying to put the blame on the company for sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as with basically everything, it's like, there's always an extra layer of complexity. Like, you know, if, if you dig a little deeper, right. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to scarcity. Like this is this is a something that is is you know well known that when there is scarcity there is more conflict like there is more crime in impoverished areas that's just a f statistical fact like wars have gone down in the history of the world as wealth has gone up and like in this example with the open source software if this person didn't need the job like I don't know let's say they had just basic income they could just say I quit any day of the week they'd probably be a little more chill about interacting with open source software. And then reporting to their boss, like, yeah, you know, there's a bug, so I'm going to work with them. I'm going to spend the next, like, two weeks working with them to fix it. And if you don't like it, I'll just quit because I don't need this job. You know, like, the scarcity is what's breeding conflict, in my opinion. I buy that. I do think there's a lot of different ways to look at scarcity. It's like scarcity of time or scarcity of money or scarcity of, I mean, in some cases, like going back to the very beginning of the conversation, it might just be a scarcity of caring about stuff. Maybe scarcity <laughs> is the wrong word for that. But I mean, sometimes, sometimes conflicts can arise just because one person cares a lot more than the people around them. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Any other things we, we should talk about before we move on to picks? I think I think we covered a lot of ground there. Cool. Well, let's move on to picks then. So this is like just talking about a couple of things that we want to share with people. You want to kick us off? Okay. Are we going to alternate like a like zip? Yeah. Oh, oh, not even that. No, just like you you go through yours and then I'll go through mine. Okay. I'm going to share a YouTube video by Folding Ideas. So you probably think I'm going to bring up the NFT ones because that one was making the rounds this week. That is an excellent one. But I'm actually going to bring up the other a different one. It's honestly, I think, my favorite video on the internet right now. It's called In Search of a Flat Earth. If you in type search in Search of a Flat Earth. Yeah. This guy, it's the guy who did the recent video on NFTs, and he dives super deep into the flat earth community and just dissects it and figures out that again, the incentive structures, why people are in there, what they're saying. And he just does it in this just beautiful, tasteful way. And it's just such a joy. I don't know. It's like an hour and a half or something. So set aside some time. Interesting. Okay. I've never heard of that. In in search of a flat earth is what in you said. Search of a it. flat search. earth. Cool. Okay. Any other picks? Or is that, that, that's the one. Oh, yeah. I got more picks. Are, are you going to do one of yours or? We don't have to alternate. We'll just, you do all yours and I'll do, I, I've only got one. So. Okay. <laughs> I forgot to get, okay. I have, I have one more loaded up and then I have to think of my third one. Okay. 
Okay, the next one is a song. It's by, uh, this is going to be harder to, to say because I have to communicate it. It's called uh, Beautiful Things by Gabrielle and Dresden, Unplugged Mix. Last time, I, I don't know if it's on Spotify. I hate Spotify, by the way. Um, topic for another day. But it's a song that exists, so find it. It's called Beautiful Things uh, Unplugged Mix by Gabrielle and Dresden. It's like 11 minutes long. You just put it on and your, your mood will transform from high stress to vibing. Okay, that inspires me to give two picks. The, the pick that I just had off the top of my head, and if you want to do a third one afterwards, we'll, we'll do that. It's fine. This is a band that I found out about, I forget how many years ago. The band is called Animals as Leaders. And uh, depending on what type of music you're in, you might already be familiar with them. But if you're not, it's basically this guitarist, Tosin Abasi, and two other bandmates, like another guitarist and a, and a drummer. And basically, if you like heavy metal type of music but you want something that's just really different it like Tosin's just like a virtuoso guitarist and just like he he does stuff with the guitar that nobody else really does these days or unless they like he did it first but yeah it's really interesting stuff if you like that type of music like heavy metal type stuff uh, i highly encourage checking it out it's all instrumental so it's also can be nice coding music it's very progressive also so a lot of weird time signatures and stuff so can you repeat the the names to search for animals as leaders that's that's the band the most recent song that I like is called Mono Myth. There's a, there's a, several albums worth of cool stuff. Anyway, the second pick. Oh, now I forgot it. Wait, I have to I have to re remember it because I got I distracted myself. It is, but um, right. It's a uh, CS Guitars is a YouTube channel. It's the Scottish guy. The tagline is the science of loud. And <laughs> I, so I've actually learned a lot of really cool stuff from this channel about not just like guitar stuff, but also just like music and even just sound in some cases. So if you're kind of interested in how like certain aspects of music work or how how certain sounds come to be in music, especially guitar stuff, I just I, I think the format's really great. It's it's really accessible. He's got some helpful visuals and stuff like that. So like I learned how like distortion works from him among other things and like like how how does that sound actually come to be like the sound of a distorted guitar oh that's cool yeah uh just just a lot of cool stuff like that and he's got a bunch of different videos and and they're uh they're really interesting so if if you like to nerd out about music stuff cs guitars the science of loud very cool okay i have a third pick it's software it's called simple nix os mail server it's a project on gitlab and they have a wiki guide tutorial on how to get a 10 out of 10 mail score so that you don't get written up as spam. Oh, okay. Here's the pitch. The pitch is, I've been using this for three years now for my main email address, which is andrew at zigling.org, and I do basically zero maintenance on it. And I, if that's it. That's the pitch. $5, uh, either, I don't know, DigitalOcean or Volta or whatever it is per month, and then I just run this on it. No maintenance. Wow. So if you're looking to get away from uh, Gmail, there's an option. And your email actually gets delivered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Very cool. I mean, that's that's usually the thing people talk about is like the concern there, right? Is, <laughs> like you're running your own operation. Is it actually going to get delivered? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though. Like if no one does it because they're afraid of it, then True. that will give Google more tools to make that reality. Uh, <laughs> so you're welcome for not being one of them. <laughs> Join me. <laughs> awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for coming. This is, a, this is a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope you had fun too. I sure did. Thanks for hosting. Looking forward to uh, seeing some of the other episodes. Awesome. All right, take care. <laughs>